You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Daniel. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. We're in Daniel chapter 11 tonight. And if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and just lift up your hand. And Kevin's on the ball back there. He'll bring one up here to you. And uh, just, you know, kind of a relaxed atmosphere here on Wednesday night. And uh, as Kevin taught a couple weeks ago, just, you know, why do we do what we do? Why are we doing Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, Bible studies throughout the weeks, you know, discipleship groups and the like. And, you know, we've been studying that it's all to glorify God. Uh, to extol him, to declare his majesty, to praise his name, and to make him great. So we praise you, Lord, tonight as we get into Daniel chapter 11 and as we look at um, things that have happened and things to come. Lord, we, we just really focus our gaze on you, Jesus. We look for you to come. We look for that day when you'll just set your kingdom up um, fully and completely and we'll just get to be with you forever and always. And, and we'll just get to declare your praises just forever, Lord. That is, that is the greatest end of us. And that is a, a beautiful, wonderful thing. So just be preparing us for that day while we live here on earth. Maybe we, we'd be so quick to just continually offer praises up to you. And thanksgiving, may they just always be upon our lips, Lord. We just worship you, even in Daniel 11 tonight, Lord. What a great book this has been. What a great chapter this will be. And so speak to us things that we never thought you could speak for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, chapter 10 was the introduction uh, to the last section of the book of Daniel, a, a section of prophecy that's laid out in chapters 11 and 12. So chapter 10, last week we, we studied that Daniel set himself to pray. He was mourning and grieving because uh, the majority of uh, Judeans hadn't gone back to Israel yet after they'd been given permission to get out of that captivity and to go on back. Uh, a tiny portion ended up going home. And so Daniel was grieved. He spent 21 days fasting and praying and after 21 days, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that from the first day he set his heart to understand and to pray, he had been dispatched from heaven. And, um, but immediately, the prince of Persia, this kind of like great demon, uh, fought against Gabriel for 21 days until Michael the archangel was dispatched to take over this battle and Gabriel was, was finally made it. Uh, to Daniel and just constantly tells Daniel that you are greatly beloved Daniel and from that first day you set your mind to, to see to seek and to understand I was dispatched and so here's this great message that was given to Daniel that so much warfare uh, was against getting it into his hands and we know now he wrote it down and we have it now we can look back and see prophecy fulfilled historically and then we can look forward and see some of it hasn't happened yet and we can look towards Jesus's coming we can discern the times and the seasons uh, that he will be coming back though not the day or the hour so Daniel chapter 11 is this vision that Gabriel brings it's kind of that bird's eye view of history for Daniel but for us it's a historical view of the events that 
will happen and have happened in the Middle East. Now, as you just look back at chapter chapter 10, verse 1, and then verse 14, it says that the message was true, but the appointed time was long. Okay, so this is a very true thing that's revealed to Daniel, but it's not going to happen for years and years and years to come. And verse 14 says, Gabriel says, Now I've come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. You might say in the end times. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. Now this chapter is, is so incredible. And for us Americans in 2011, it's really hard to wrap our brain around it all. But for someone that had grown up in the Middle East, for someone especially in Daniel's day through up through Jesus' day and Paul's day, they understood everything that it was talking about. And an incredible thing is that there are 135 prophecies that have been fulfilled in this one chapter. It's a chapter that just absolutely baffles the skeptic and gives them a great headache. And because this chapter is so accurate, most critics have said that Daniel didn't even write this book, but that it was written in about the 6th century BC in what they call the Maccabean era. And so, you know, if you were told that, one thing that you get to chime in is that, oh, but Jesus himself said that Daniel wrote the book. In chapter 24, Jesus quotes both chapter 9 and chapter 11 in Daniel referring to the abomination of desolation. And Jesus refers uh, to that prophet as the prophet Daniel. And, you know, the secular historians, I even heard of a professor who was saying that it wasn't really Daniel in a, in a seminary, said it wasn't really Daniel who wrote it. And as a, as a student called him on the carpet and said, but Jesus said it was Daniel. He says, oh man, I know so much more about Daniel than Jesus Christ does. And then when he realized what he'd said, they just quickly moved on. But um, another neat thing is that the Dead Sea Scrolls have been found since the 1940s, an original, you know, copy um, dating back, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus that date the book of Daniel, Daniel's in it, from before the Maccabean period. So that's just another, chalk another victory up uh, for Jesus, you know. But, um, uh, you know, God is omniscient. That is one of his attributes. That is one of his qualities that nobody else gets to claim. God is so spectacular that he sees the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the end and the beginning. He's everything in between. And so for us as Christians, you know, why should it be thought an incredible thing you know, that the Lord knows what's going to happen a couple hundred years from now? <laughs> you know, he created the universe just with a word. You know, he formed us from the dust of the earth. Uh, and so is it really that incredible of a thing, you know, that, that God can create the world or raise the dead or prophesy a couple uh, hundred years uh, in advance? Now, this is a, a crazy book. You know, I came up at about two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, Lindsay was studying for the kids, I was studying, and she's like, man, I'm just trying to think of a memory verse out of chapter seven for the kids to memorize, and I'm like, yeah, well, Daniel 11's kicking my booty, okay? <laughs> it's just, it's so thick, and so let's sharpen our teeth tonight and get ready to study it. It's packed full of information. Why so much information? Um, well, because it deals with God's people. It deals with the Jew. It deals with the nation of Israel. 
We're, we're going to read countless battles that happen on the land that God gave to Israel. We're going to see emperors crossing into Israeli territory. And we're going to see 100,000 Jews slaughtered in this chapter. And so to us, in our sometimes our slothfulness, sometimes our arrogance, sometimes our just not knowing, we just don't really care. Um, but the Lord cares so much so that he sent the angel Gabriel to fight for 21 days. He moved Daniel to fast for 21 days so that we could have this God-breathed, God-inspired text of chapter 11 given to us. Now, as we look at verses 1 through 35, we're going to see the first 69 weeks of Daniel chapter 9 coming about. Remember when Stuart taught, he read about those 70 weeks from Daniel chapter 9, verse I believe 26 or something, 70 weeks which have been determined for God's people, for the holy city of Jerusalem, for the nation to bring an end to sin to bring an end of transgressions, and to anoint the Holy One of Israel. So 70 weeks have been determined for Israel until Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom, and sin is done with, and he's finally the proclaimed king of Israel. But it all has to do with Israel. It all has to do with Jerusalem, and their sin coming to an end, and them anointing the most holy Now, 70 weeks certainly has gone by since then, right? But we know that the word week is heptad, heptad, which means seven. And so essentially what Daniel was told was that 77s are determined for Jesus to come back and to be ruling and reigning like we all can't wait for him to do. That's 490 years, right? 490 years. Now, we're told that 69 weeks will go by from the command to rebuild the wall. 69 of those weeks. That's 483 years would go by until Jesus, Messiah the Prince, comes into Jerusalem. And we read that that was the very day, April 6, 32 AD, that Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Um, but there's this last week that we haven't seen yet, okay? And um, we're going to see that week today prophesied of in chapter 11. But the first 35 verses are that, uh, is that um, 483 years that happens after Daniel's day, okay? So um, I already hear a couple blown fuses, and that's okay. Uh, I've blown a few myself. Um, let's just look at chapter 10, verse 20 and 21, the last couple verses of chapter 10. Then he, Gabriel, said, do you, not, or do you know why I've come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. That's that demonic, you know, being over Persia. And when I've gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, Gabriel, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. That's Michael. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now, we've known a lot as we've gone through this book that prophecies had been given to Daniel and to Nebuchadnezzar of the order of kingdoms that would come and rule over Israel and then the t- until the time that Jesus would come and rule and reign. 
And Daniel, who was in Babylonian captivity, was told that first of all, it would be Babylon ruling and reigning, the head of gold, if you will, or the lion, right? Then would come the Medes and the Persians, the arms and, and shoulders of silver. And then would come the belly and thighs of bronze or Alexander the Great with the Grecians. Then would be the legs of iron. We're, we're referring to chapter 2 of Daniel. These legs of iron that would be the Roman Empire that would come and rule and reign. And then finally, one day, there would be this revived Roman Empire, these feet mixed partly of iron, showing that they're partly Roman, but also this other mixture going on. And out of that, those feet will arise uh, a, a wicked king, the Antichrist. And it's in that day, the day of the ten toes of the revived Roman Empire, that Jesus will come back. We all cannot wait until that day. And so we're, we're revealed that, uh, that the time now in verse 2 is uh, at the time of the Persian reign or the second empire that would reign. Three kings are going to arise in Persia. The fourth will be richer than them all. His strength through all his riches, he shall stir up against the realm of Greece. Now, a prophecy specifically against this fourth and greatest king who we know as Xerxes. Xerxes, the final greatest king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And history tells us that his wealth was unstinking believable. He was so wealthy, and yet for some reason he just had to go and fight and just pick a, just pick a fight with the Grecians. And so he went towards the Grecians to fight them, and this great, huge battle ensued for many years, but it culminated at this one place called Thermopylae. Thermopylae basically was along the coast on the way to Greece, and it funneled into this mountain, huge, high cliff area where um, there was only one way in and there was only one way out. And this battle ensued with 300 Greeks against over a million, uh, I'm sorry, over 100,000 of Xerxes' armies. He had a 2.5 million man army, which was huge in that day. And the Grecians wiped them out and it culminates with 100,000 against 300. Legend says, history tells us. And those 300 fought so hard and really wiped out the Persian army, but they themselves perished. So the Persians won that battle, but they would end up losing the war as they go on into Greece and and set up occupation there. The Grecians had such a grudge against the Persians who came and were occupying their land that finally a 19-year-old named Alexander became general and started fighting back. And he fought back against the Persians and he won against the Persians. And he would go and he would fight all across what we know as Asia and and East Asia and down to uh, Egypt. And by the age of 33, within three years, he had conquered the then known world. And so, uh, so that's a little bit of history, starting with this fourth powerful king of Persia setting up ruling and reigning and, and conquering the Greeks. But then we have verse 3, um, where it says, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. That's referring to Alexander the Great. This is one of the scriptures that the, the priest Jeduah came out in Jerusalem, referred 
um, Alexander the Great too. And Alexander the Great was so in awe that he was mentioned in Scripture that he spared the temple um, from further destruction. But uh, this king, Alexander the Great, arose. He made, ruled with great dominion and did according to his will. We've done so much studying on Alexander the Great that we won't do any more on that except that um, by the age of 33, within three years, he conquered the whole world. He was so bummed that there seemed to be no more worlds to conquer that he wept like a little baby in his sleep, set up a great party for himself, got drunk, went out, to, out into a rainstorm, caught pneumonia, and died. Before he died, he wanted to be buried in a vat of honey so that his body would be preserved for his resurrection. Um, and so not much else to say about him except that verse 4 it says when he has arisen his kingdom would be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven but not among his posterity nor according to his dominion with which he ruled for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these so at his height when he's arisen we read this in chapter what was it, chapter 8, this other prophecy of Alexander the Great, that when he was at his height on top, he died, and his kingdom didn't go to his posterity. It didn't go to his one and only son, but rather it was divided up to his four faithful, this is four, to his four faithful generals. Um, And so as the story unfolds today, we're going to really be focusing on two of those generals. We're going to focus on the Seleucian general and his family line, also known as the Antiochans, um, the, the area they occupied when the kingdom was divided was up in Syria, which is just north of Israel. The other general got the area of, uh, his name was Ptolemy, P.T. Ptolemy, uh, <laughs> Ptolemy, and he got the area of Egypt. So Antiochus got way better deal, but you know, uh, here Ptolemy gets the area of Egypt. And and uh, these kings, you'll notice, one is up in Syria, north of Israel. One is down in Egypt, south of Israel. And what's the piece of real estate that occupies the road between? That's it. <laughs> you guys were just quiet because you knew. It was a rhetorical question. Uh, it's, it's Israel. Okay, Israel is in between these two new empires uh, among four. And we're going to read tonight that the Seleucians and the Ptolemies will be enemies. They're going to war against each other with Israel being right in the middle. Now, verses 5 through 28, we read of this great feud. The great feud, these warring kings between the north and the south. Now, there's been a few famous feuds in history. There's been the feud between Elizabeth I, the Queen of England, and Mary, the Queen of Scots. After imprisoning her cousin Mary for almost two decades, Elizabeth condemned her cousin to death because she found out about an assassination plot against her. So she had her cousin Mary, the Queen of Scots, beheaded. Some of you would like to do that to some of your relatives, I'm sure. We've got Alexander Hamilton, the famous duel between him and Aaron Burr. Tensions had simmered between them for years between this bitter political and personal rivalry culminating in a duel on July 11th, 1804. Hamilton, who was the former Secretary of the United States Treasury, was shot and fatally wounded by Alex, or by Aaron Burr, who was actually the Vice President at the time. 
When was the last time the vice president went out and dueled somebody with a pistola? Hasn't happened. You've got the Hatsfields and the McCoys, right? Most of you have heard of them. Movies have been written about. The, it all started, this feud started with the theft of a pig. A theft of a pig began this bloody feud that raged on for more than a decade where more than 10 of these family members were shot and killed on both sides. You've got uh, Joseph Stalin and Leon Trotsky, and you've got Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine, or Joan Fontaine. Have you ever heard of them? Back in the 40s, these sisters had been actresses together and actually both won an Oscar. And that night at the Oscars, this feud between them began. Back in the 40s that continues to this day, they both are in their 90s. And so famous feuds throughout history, this is one of them. We read about it here in Daniel chapter 11 between the Ptolemies and the Seleucians. And, and what's interesting about this feud, it almost has this flavor of the Capulets and the Montagues from Romeo and Juliet. We're actually going to see a little bit of romance going on between you know, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, even though it's forbidden, right? Um, so verse uh, 5 and 6 tells us this. Also, the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes. And he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years, they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain an agreement. But she shall, excuse me, but she shall not retain the power of her authority. And neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. So we have the first little romance that starts to brew between the Ptolemies and the Antiochans. The king of the south, Ptolemy, says, we shouldn't fight against each other. You know, how's Oklahoma musical go? You know, the the farmers and the cowmen must be friends, you know, and uh, that's exactly here. You know, hey, we're from Alexander the Great. What are we fighting about? Can't we all just get along, you know? And, And often the custom of the day was, you know, here, marry my daughter so that we are family now, so that we won't fight against each other. We're family and we care about our grandkids and we want everybody to just get along. And so Ptolemy sends up his daughter to marry King Antiochus, common practice of the day. Now Antiochus says, well, that's great and she is beautiful, but I'm already married, okay? What do I do? Ptolemy talks him into it, talks him into leaving the older wife and marrying this younger daughter named Berenice. Now, soon after Berenice married into the Antiochian Empire, uh, Ptolemy, her dad, dies. And so Antiochus says, hey, let's bring back the old ball and chain. You know, let's bring back the old wife. I want two wives now. And the first day his wife is back in power, or back as a queen, she stabs her husband, Antiochus, in the back, slits Berenice's throat, tracks down the the love child, kills him as well, and she's the only one left to tell the story. That's basically a prophecy that was fulfilled that was given to Daniel by the angel Gabriel. So now, Ptolemy and Antiochus, Bernice and the baby, are all dead. Now, something we're going to see in this chapter is that everybody names their sons junior, okay? 
There's all going to be Ptolemy, 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 or uh, Antiochus, 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 Antiochus. Okay, so don't let that confuse you. Everybody's a junior in this story. Now look at verse 7. But from a branch of her roots, from a branch of Berenice's roots, this kid's an Egyptian, one shall arise in his place who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. So history tells us, prophecy fulfilled. Berenice's brother, shot from the family tree, comes back up to the north with a giant prevailing army, army and takes out revenge against the empire of the north. Verses 8 and 9. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Verse 9. Also the kings of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So this brother of Berenice, his name was Ptolemy III. He gets angry about his sister's murder, takes his army up to the north, tromps through the north, goes up there, fights, ends up going into uh, the temple, stealing back a whole bunch of gods that had been stolen. Uh, He actually also gets 2,500 of their captured sons, basically, and brings them back and basically just leads this great rescue party up to the north. Once again, prophecy fulfilled. Now in verse 10, the plot thickens. However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. You might just put in parentheses, pass through Israel. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Now, if you get confused in this, Don't worry about it. What you need to know is they just keep going back and forth and back and forth, tromping through God's country and just picking on each other, killing each other, stealing things, intermarrying, giving up, you know, and and don't get, it just happens back and forth quite a few times. Um, But what happened here is that the Syrians up north were stirred up like an angry hornet's nest, assembled another multitude uh, of fortresses, goes back down and invades but as they're on their way to invade they actually take israel and claim it as their own they go through this land and they kind of shove their flag in the ground and say this is syrian property you know this is antiochian property and that makes the egyptians or the ptolemies angry verse 11 and 14 uh, through 14 and the king of the south shall be moved with rage bum that they took Israel and he'll go out and fight with them and the king of the north who shall muster a great multitude but the multitude shall be given into the hand of the enemy when he had taken away the multitude his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands but he won't prevail verse 13 for the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Verse 14, now in those days, many nations, put in parentheses, shall rise up against the king of the south. Also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the south is mad. They can't 
counterattack and fight. And the battle all ends up centering right here on Israel, on the promised land. Antiochus V comes up once again and says, we're going to settle this once and for all. So he goes over to Greece, gets Philip V, and asks him to come down with him and to teach the Ptolemies, the Egyptians, a lesson. Philip comes down and fights again uh, in, in verse 14, fulfilling verse 14, that many nations would come. You guys keeping track with me? Just a whole bunch of banter going back and forth. Verse 15, so the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. Verse 16, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land, that's Israel, with destruction in his power. Keep in mind, there are Jews in Israel at this point. There are Jews that are going through this war-torn you know, country. And it's not necessarily yet centered on them being the, the victims of war or, or being the enemy in war. But they're certainly the victims. They're certainly the, um, you know, the, uh, shoot, all my military lingo's leaving me. But, you know, they're, they're the casualties of war at this point. John, how come you didn't pipe up, my fellow military man? You know, uh, they're casualties of war right now. And you can just see the trick of the enemy. Throughout history, he's always trying to destroy Israel. He knows the promises of God that are to Israel and the fulfillment thereof. Uh, and, and he knows the Messiah was going to come. So he's always trying to wipe out Israel, you know, whether it's through Pharaoh slaughtering all the little boys and Moses was saved, whether it's Saul trying to kill David, you know, whether it's Herod trying to kill the line of, you know, of Jesus there in Bethlehem, you know, whatever. He's always, you know, Hitler, um, you know, the persecutions of Rome back in the, the first century, you know, all of that. And, and you just see him trying to work here, like even in the casualty of war, that they might be destroyed. Um, and so verse 17 comes along with it, that he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. This he shall do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. And so this again is where the romance comes in, even more of a soap opera scene where he's giving him the daughter of women to destroy it. So, Things have settled down just a little bit in the midst of these wars. So Antiochus in the north said, let's go back and try the marriage thing out again. Let's go back and I'm going to give you my daughter uh, to go down to Egypt and to live among you and to be this little sign of peace between us. But Antiochus had deceit in his heart in doing this, and he actually wanted her to be a spy in the palace of the Egyptians down there. And so uh, it, hopefully this, this will work out. Hopefully this will be good. And uh, something that we're going to see that history tells us is that this daughter's name was Cleopatra. You guys heard of Cleopatra. Um, and, and the deal is, is that Cleopatra is going to go to Egypt. And the son of Ptolemy down there is actually a young man, even actually a boy at this time. So the dealio is, is that Cleopatra has to rob the cradle, okay? So she goes down there and she waits for this little boy to become of age. And something that the king of the north hadn't thought of that actually happened 
was this. What if that boy grows up to be quite good looking, quite suave and quite debonair? And what if Cleopatra develops feelings for him? What if he pulls on the heartstrings just a bit? It's actually what happened. And so she goes down, supposed to be a spy. She actually falls in love with this this young man and refuses to be a spy for her father. And yet another prophecy fulfilled that she would not stand with him, verse 17, or before him. She turns against her dad and her dad is mad. Her dad is mad that she stood by this kid's side Not for long, she's a pagan, remember, and she ends up leaving him for a Roman named Mark Antony. You guys know it. And so she's going to end up going and kind of building this little truce with the Romans and be part of the Romans coming in and fulfilling prophecy, uh, taking part there. So uh, just cool to see history happen, but but what's better is to see prophecy fulfilled Bearing witness, confirming, and validating the inspired written word of God. God's right, right? Now, verse 18 says, After all of this, the angry dad will turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler, Caesar actually, shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Antiochus is so mad at his daughter's betrayal that he turns his face towards the islands of Greece. And he says, forget Egypt, I'm I'm going for the Greeks. And as he goes to fight the Greeks, the Romans come in and won't let him exercise this authority. Verse 19, then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So in his anger, Antiochus goes into one of the temples of his own god, falls down and dies okay verse 20 there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom but within a few days he shall be destroyed not in anger or in battle now what happens when you're fighting a big war you accumulate big debt and so the next antiochus to come on the scene imposes taxes to pay for that debt Apparently, they hadn't reaped much plunder yet uh, to pay for that. And, and nobody liked that. He didn't say, read my lips, no new taxes. You know, he said, more taxes. And within a couple of days, he was actually poisoned. So it wasn't through uh, a battle that happened here. And it wasn't in some angry rage, but he was poisoned. The Syrians were in debt, and uh, he had sent 1,000 tax collectors across Israel uh, to collect. Um, and so we see... The feud will continue, but we're going to see now uh, the foul fiend introduced. His name, Antiochus Epiphanes. And all of this war around Israel had set the stage for Antiochus Epiphanes to come on the scene. As we studied in chapter 8 of this, the little horn coming up out of the goat's head, Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a picture of one to come. He's a foreshadowing of one to come who won't come out of the um, out of the uh, Grecian line, but will come out of a Roman line. So this Grecian Antiochus Epiphanes is going to be a picture of the Antichrist to come who will come out of the revived Roman Empire. So verse 21, in his place, 
shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom, excuse me, by intrigue. So we see that he is vile or loathsome or foul, which means causing or able to cause nausea. This guy, when you read of what he does, will make your stomach upset. He is thoroughly unpleasant. He's despicable. He's foul. And he's offensive. And he's just a type and a picture of one to come, the Antichrist. Notice that the way he's going to come in, it's not going to be of military might, but he's going to come in peaceably and by intrigue. That's exactly how the Antichrist is going to come in in his day. Jesus says that at the Olivet Discourse. The seal judgments begin in Revelation chapter 6 with a man on a white horse, one of the apocalypse horsemen on a white horse who comes conquering yet without a sword. He comes rather with his mouth and with these peace treaties that are all phony and that are all fake. It's all a picture, um, you know, Epiphanies is just a picture of the Antichrist who's to come. Verse 22, with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken and also the prince of the covenant. So in 175 BC, we studied this in chapter 8, Antiochus Epiphanes came in as this great public orator. He came in with cunning and with trickery he seduced people they made him king not just in syria but even down in israel when he became king he overthrew the prince of the covenant which was the high priest named onesius the third another prophecy fulfilled um a man who was supposed to be the high priest was kicked out and then uh antiochus epiphanes set up his own pagan priest within the temple And uh, the Jews started to sense that something was wrong and they wouldn't follow him. They wouldn't follow this guy who started out as a flatterer or a peaceable person. Just like in Revelation chapter 12, you see that the Jews in the tribulation are going to see something's not quite right about this guy. And that's when persecution is going to arise against them. Verse 23 and 24. Water break, anybody? (laughs) And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. For he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even to the richest place of the providence, speaking of Moab and Syria. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. He shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. And so Ptolemy from the south, his servants, actually devised plans and turned against their kings. Verse 26 says, yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. Prophecy fulfilled. The king's people turned against him. Verse 27, both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they 
they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. So the Egyptians know their beat. Ptolemy comes, sits down at a peace table, hopefully to draft some kind of peace treaty, which they did, but it was all lies. Verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At that appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. So years end up passing. Epiphanes wants to go down and attack the Egyptians again, but verse 30 happens. Ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and turn in rage, return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And so as, as uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, this wicked guy known as the little horn or the first antichrist, you know, uh, he goes down and he's fighting and he's just starting to kind of get ticked off in war. He's getting bitter and enraged. He goes back home after this peace treaty that they had drafted and decides, I'm going to go fight him again. But on his way, ships from Cyprus come. These were Roman ships. And how interesting to just see Rome starting to come on the scene. Roman ships came from Cyprus, got off on land, and ended up heading out into the desert with these Roman troops. And they actually stop Antiochus Epiphanes in the desert, draw a line in the sand, and said, you won't attack Egypt anymore. If you cross this line, we'll kill you. And so Antiochus Epiphanes turns around and goes back, and he is so mad. And you just picture people in this world when they're mad after having been stopped or confronted or corrected or, you know, and, and especially bullies, you know, what do they do? They go and they start picking on, you know, the little kids, you know? And so there Israel is in the middle of a war-torn country and Antiochus Epiphanes comes back up through totally ticked off and he's going to turn and he's going to really persecute the Israelites. He's, uh, he's really angry here. And uh, verse 31 says that forces should be must, shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolations. So prophecy is totally fulfilled in all this. He's so mad, he gets his troops, goes into the temple, stops the sacrifices from being made, has set up his image in there to be worshipped and um, and and a kind of foreshadowing of a future abomination of desolations takes place. Now, Jesus used this phrase in Matthew chapter 24, the abomination of desolation. He says, when you see the abomination of desolations take place, then, you know, just know that it's going to get really bad. And pray that your flight out of Jerusalem at the time isn't on the Sabbath. And pray that you're not nursing babies. And pray that you're not pregnant or childbearing because it's going to get really bad and the Jews are going to run out into the wilderness to seek shelter. But while the abomination of desolation, let's focus on that for a second. It literally means the hated act that brings desolation. um, Epiphanes is so enraged that not only does he set up this image of himself, but he slaughters a pig inside the temple, which was a, you know, unclean animal to the Jews and slaughters the pig, wipes its blood all over the, te- the temple and then forces the remaining living priests to drink pig's blood. And so you can just imagine this, 
this just detestable act bringing about devastation not only uh, to people but also to you know the cleanliness and the ordinances of the law of God. He's so enraged that he also in one day slaughters 40,000 Jews in cold blood, which will just be a, a small amount compared to the whole 100,000 Jews that are killed by the time he's done. So it's this terrible, sickening scene that we just really can't imagine. Unless you've been in war, we, just, we have no comprehension um, of what had happened. And you know, really, war is just a, a fraction of what happened here on that day. And, um, and so this is just a bit of why the Jews to this day don't call him Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the shining one, but rather Antiochus Epimendes, which means the freaked out and crazy insane one. And to this day, they call him that because of what he did there in Jerusalem. And you'll remember that there was one family that said, we will not tolerate this. The family was known as the Maccabean family, although that wasn't their real name. One of the fathers refused to bow the knee uh, and to renounce his, his faith in his God, and he was actually slaughtered. But he had five sons, the eldest named Judah. And Judah would end up leading this great guerrilla warfare against um, Antiochus Epiphanes actually ending up chasing him out of town and uh, fighting for quite a few years these victorious, radical battles. Though they dubbed Judah um, Maccabees, uh, Maccabee, which means the sledgehammer. And, uh, and he did. He brought the hammer down on this pagan ruler. And so as they fought the uh, the it would be the Syrians out of Jerusalem at the time, they went into the temple and saw the blood of the pigs all over the place, slaughtered bodies everywhere. As they're cleaning it up, they need to light these candles in the temple. But there was only enough oil in the candles for the amount of days, eight days of purification that needed to happen. There was only enough oil for one day. And so the Maccabeans came and they prayed, and the Lord brought miraculously enough oil in the lamps for eight days and so that's what Hanukkah is all about. It's the Feast of Lights. It's, it's that feast celebrating what God did there uh, as Antiochus Epiphanes was chased out. And so while we have the, um, the great feud and as we have the foul fiend, we now see in verse uh, 32 here the great feats. The great feats where it says that those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flatter, flattery, but here's the great feats. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And so this is an actual prophetic refer, uh, referral to the Maccabean revolution. And what a promise to us even today that if we know our God, if we have relationship with our God, if we have communion with our God that's been made available through Jesus Christ, then we too shall be strong and carry out great feats. We will have the Holy Spirit within us to do radical things that can only be attributed to God himself. And just as Elijah was a great prophet with the Spirit of the Lord upon him, his successor Elisha said, 
oh Lord, one thing I ask of you before you're caught up into heaven, I want double the portion of the spirit that's on you upon me. And the Lord granted that prayer so much so you can look at it, you can examine the scriptures and see that Elisha actually did twice as many miracles for twice as long than Elijah did. And so, man, may we cry out for more of the spirit, for the torrents of of living water to be upon us. Even though you may be filled right now with the Holy Spirit, cry out for more and more of the spirit, just as the apostles did. And maybe you're here today and you don't know God. Or rather, perhaps God doesn't know you. We all know Matthew chapter 7, that sobering passage where many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do great things in your name? And Jesus looks at them and says, get away from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Then may we go into that gnosko is the Greek word, that knowledge by experience. May we know God by experiencing him. And may God know us. May we have that relationship that he's made for us, that we could be called sons and daughters of God. And if you are his son, and if you are his daughter, then you walk in confidence, not in yourself, but in what he can do cast down doubt you guys run away from doubt now i think this should be our memory verse for chapter 11 those who know their god shall be strong and carry out great exploits flip over to hebrews chapter 11 and we all know hebrews 11 we've called it the hall of faith you know the hall of faith as you just look at these characters from the old testament excuse me testament who knew their god and were strong and who carried out great exploits, who even though they were sinners who have their sins recorded in Scripture, you know, who, who were murderers and adulterers and liars, and, and they did horrible things. Idolaters, every one of those characters failed. And yet we get to look through them through the lens of the cross, and not one of their errors is mentioned in chapter 11 of Hebrews but only the great exploits that God accomplished through them for his glory. And I just want to look, you know, there's a whole bunch that are awesome. It's a great study. Let's just look at verses 30 through 39. It's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a conclusion of it all, of all these great heroes of the faith. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab but did not perish with those who did not believe. When she'd received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Also of David and Saul and all the prophets. Samuel and all the prophets. Who through faith subdued kingdoms. Worked righteousness. Obtained promises. Stopped the mouths of lions. Quenched the violence of fire. Escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Became valiant in battle. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. 
They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. I love that conclusion that in all of the things, all of those great exploits, all of those incredible feats that happened, it didn't end at the Old Testament, you know. It it can happen today in our midst as the resurrected Jesus has sent his spirit to dwell in every one of us that we could do great works for his glory. And I love that though they were awesome, you know, by the power of God and for his glory, they did great things. They weren't made perfect apart from us. It didn't end apart from us. We get to be a part of the saga. We get to be a part of Hebrews chapter 11. We can know our God and carry out great exploits. A great read is uh, Heavenly Man. The, you know, the Smiths gave me that book, the autobiography of Brother Yun in China who was persecuted for his faith. And I'll tell you what, it's like reading the book of Acts. As Brother Yun knew his God, carried out great exploits, had prison doors literally open up by themselves that he could leave and escape, had, him, you know, had an angel or someone lift him up over a gigantic wall so that he could escape persecution. Those who know their God can be strong carry out great exploits. You read uh, John. Can't find the reference. It's in John where Jesus says that, you know, greater things than these, greater things than Jesus even did, we will do. Walk in that. Walk in that faith. Don't let faith limit or hinder you. I'll tell you what, if you weren't an American, you wouldn't be questioning whether God does great exploits in this day and age. You would go down and you would be part of these places that are absolutely 100% reliant upon God and dependent upon his Holy Spirit. And they see these kinds of things every day. So man, I think one of our prayers when we wake up in the morning is, Lord, I don't rely upon myself. I don't rely upon the things I do or my resources. I've got nothing, Lord. I rely upon you for your glory. Carry out great exploits today and watch what he'll do. You know, the contrast here, and actually if we just go back as you look in verse, uh, okay, good. Skipped ahead of my notes. Um, <clears throat> I just touch again that it's the people who know their God. And just maybe you'll just close your eyes right now and you'll just search your heart. You know, as Hebrews tells us to do daily, examine yourself and see if you're of the faith. If you were a fruit tree tonight, are you calling yourself an apple tree? But your life is producing thorns. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to God. Examine the fruit of your life. Do you know God? Do you have the fruits of the Spirit of Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Are you obedient to him? Are you fulfilling the commission? 
Are you attempting to care about his commission to us? Examine your life. Do you know your God? In verse 33, as we move on, you see the future foe. The future foe. And we see this is the beginning of the the twist on the story where it jumps ahead into the future and it shows us Daniel's 70th week. In verse 33, and those who of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. It's all speaking of that revolution, that time of Antioch's epiphanies. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. Verse 35, and some of those who of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end because it's still for the appointed time. We keep going to that appointed time, that time of the end, that end times. And here we jump to Daniel's 70th week, the great tribulation, where one more vile and more loathsome than Antiochus Epiphanes comes on the scene. And we read in that account that there will be a group of people who will understand and they will fall, they will be killed, but they will be purified and they will be Made, in, uh, made to be white until the time of the end. And let's flip over to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. And let's look at that, that account of that future prophecy of the fifth seal being opened in Revelation. Here's a prophecy being given to us. It says, when, he opened, when Jesus opens the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So you see those faithful ones in the end days of the Antichrist. They're going to be martyred. They'll be clothed in purity. They were faithful till the end. They didn't love their lives until the death, as Revelation later on says. But they, you know, they overcome the Antichrist with the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. Verse, uh, let's see here, I don't want to jump anything because I also uh, wrote things down. Did I skip any verses? Just curious. Okay, good. Verse 36. <clears throat> then the king shall do according to his own will. Might, under, might underline that. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. So you might note that, that this king, will do according to his own will. Both Epiphanes and the Antichrist in the end times, he's going to exalt and magnify himself above God. He's going to do what he wants. And he always will do what he wants. In fact, he's going to be indwelt by Satan, who always did what he wanted, who exalted himself against God and was cast out of heaven with a third of the angels for, because of the pride that was in his heart. Now let's be careful right now that we're not too hard on Antiochus Epiphanes. We're not too hard on the Antichrist, and we're not too hard on even Lucifer, because we can be so much like them and do exactly what they've done. 
We too can exalt ourselves up against God. We can make ourselves to be God. We can magnify ourselves and belittle Him. And as we studied in Romans chapter 1 last week, that is the greatest and most sickening thing about all sin is that we exalt ourselves against God and we rob Him of the glory that is due to Him and only Him. We exchange the glory of the invisible God, uh, the glory of the undefiled God and the undecaying God. And we exchange it for an image made like decayed man. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And yes, you know all that. Thank you, Lucifer, for bringing that upon us and all that. But we still do it. We still willingly do it. And while Antiochus Epiphanes was a bad, bad man, Rory Rogers was a bad man and every one of you bad men bad women idolaters at best exalting yourself against your creator who as romans said what may be known about him was manifest in every one of you and me for god has shown it to us we knew our god and we rebelled against our god So, tisk tisk Antiochus Epiphanes, but woe is Rory Rogers. He's a man of unclean lips. And we need Jesus to cleanse us and purify us by his blood. Contrast Antiochus Epiphanes, who exalts himself above every god and speaks blasphemies against the God of gods, with Jesus himself, who said these words, not my will but yours be done. And who also said this, I always live to do the will of my Father. Quite a contrast, isn't it? Contrast Antiochus Epiphanes with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, He was found in the appearance of a man and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's our God. That's the God that we get to preach. When I was at the Oasis last Thursday, I got to tell him, hey, you know what God I'm preaching to you today? He's a God of gentleness. He's a God that's coming to you. And if you are a bruised reed tonight, he will not break you. If you are a smoking flax, he will not quench you. Being a man, he knows what it's like to be men, and he's sympathetic to you in your sin. But he commands all men everywhere to repent and to turn from sin. Because he was holy and never sinned. So let his righteousness be imparted to you. One day he will come as a conquering king, but he came first of all as a lowly suffering servant on the foal of a donkey. Doesn't get much lower than that. Wrapping up here, verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers or the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. He's just this prideful, pompous, arrogant man. Some say perhaps he was Jewish uh, with, of course, the Roman lineage there, Um, but, you know, the God of his fathers. So, you know, what is that talking about? Maybe he's Jewish. Some people think so. Got some Jewish blood there. Um, And he also doesn't regard the desire for women. He has no 
libido. You know, he uh, perhaps is a homosexual. And uh, in the future, um, you know, who knows? He's got Satan in him. And so it wouldn't be any surprise. He is his own God. Uh, Verse 38, but in their place, he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. He worships, you know, uh, these, these great castles, you know, and these mansions, these fortresses. He worships munitions and weaponry. And the designer of his weaponry, the prophecy, is that he's going to get a lot of money. You know, you think about the stealth bomber being worth about a billion dollars, you know, and uh, the, the warfare of the end times. You know, whoever designs whatever this guy is going to use is going to get a lot of cash. Verse 39, thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for grain. Just basically flexing his military might here. Um, verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. The kings of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. Chariots, horsemen, and with mighty ships, he shall enter in the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Um, you know, in the middle of the tribulation, the Arabs and the Egyptians are actually going to make war against the Antichrist uh, who's in Jerusalem. They're starting to not like this crazy world leader. Verse 41 through 43 says, he shall also enter the glorious land. And many countries shall be overthrown. He's going to enter into Israel there. Uh, These shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. Verse 44, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Perhaps China with uh, you know, the 200 million man army that you read of earlier on in Revelation, or who actually boasts a 2 million man army back in the 90s, and perhaps Russia, perhaps something with the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 happening here. Um, Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and to annihilate the, the, uh, the many. Verse 45, he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. And if you'll flip over to Revelation chapter 16 verse 12, you read about the culmination of what's happening here. Basically what's being prophesied of is the events leading up to the battle of Armageddon. In fact, you read that he pitches his tents in in the place between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. That is the valley of Megiddo or Armageddon. Revelation 16 12 says, The sixth angel pours out his bowl of wrath on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Really, that's what the battle is about. It's about God. (laughs) Behold, I'm coming as a thief, blesses he who watches, keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And they gathered, gathered them together in the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. So uh, the Valley of Megiddo, or Armageddon, this battle is unfolding. Other nations are coming to fight against the Antichrist. It's a demonic force that dries up the river Euphrates so that these armies and the prophesied giant armies can come to culminate in the battle of Armageddon, which Napoleon himself said as he looked out across it, that this is that place where the greatest battle uh, of all the ages 
will take place. <clears throat> um, and, and none are going to be able to help the Antichrist. No one's going to come along to his side. But he's got his weapons, and everyone comes with their chariots, horses, and ships, which is the prophecy. And, uh, you know, with those electronic magnetic pulse bombs that they've got these days that just set off in the sky, you know, all electricity can be wiped out. So you certainly could see, especially all that Revelation tells us can happen in the end, um, probably not going to be a whole lot of uh, electrical devices. But none of that really matters. What I want to conclude on tonight, as we've got this feud that's happened, as we've got this fiend of Antiochus Epiphanes, as we've got these feats of the Maccabeans and also all those who know their God carrying a great exploits as we see the future foe of the Antichrist coming in Revelation and in the end days. Let's focus on the great friends tonight who's going to come in the midst of this great battle that we close on. And you can go to Revelation 19.11 and we've been concluding there a lot as we've closed the book of Daniel Revelation 19.11. And Ken, why don't you come on up and just prepare to close us. We can bring the uh, children on in if someone wants to go get them. It says this, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeds from the mouth of him who sits on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And that's really the conclusion to that the battle that we see of the Euphrates being right up the battle of armageddon and uh, next week we'll close the book of daniel with chapter 12 and and also this this vision continues and we see really more about the end times there in daniel 12 but let's go ahead and close and as we worship the lord tonight man we worship the one who out of all of these kings he's the one who's going to stand conquering and ruling and reigning and he's the one who's sovereign over all of these world events and knows the end from the beginning. He's the one who's responsible for the 135 fulfilled prophecies in 45 verses. And we want to declare his greatness and his omniscience and his splendor tonight. But before we do tonight, just with every head bowed and every eye closed, we just want to just come back again to you here tonight 
if you don't know God, if you don't know God, then right now you're in the same place of of the wicked man that we've read about tonight. And you're in the same place of those that are in this last battle we just read who have the, the final judge come down on his white horse ruling and reigning in his majesty and coming in judgment and wiping out all those who oppose him, all of those who don't know him. And if he looks at you tonight, would he say he knows you? And my plea to you tonight is be reconciled to God. He loves you so much. Knowing what sin has done to people and what sin will do, He forbid it. Knowing that He can't stand sin because He's holy, He cannot look upon sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. But He didn't just leave us in our corruption. He loves you so much that He sent His only Son to die on the cross in your place. To take upon the wrath of God that should be upon you. That if you would believe in Him tonight, if you would rest in Him tonight, you would not perish. You would not go to hell. You would not be part of this final battle where the birds eat the flesh of those that rebel against God. But rather you would have eternal life with Jesus in paradise. And my plea to you here, surrender to God. Humble yourself before God. Confess your sins and your wickedness and your lying and cheating and stealing and lust and covetousness and jealousy your bitterness your murder in your heart towards people confess those things before the lord even more than that you know what it is confess it to the lord and receive the forgiveness that's been made available through the cross and receive the new life tonight that's been made available by jesus resurrecting from the dead through faith tonight, by believing tonight. You can have relationship with God. You can know God. You can worship God with us tonight. And you can carry out great exploits for His name. And all you have to do, simplest thing, is rest in Him. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Respond to Him tonight. Let's respond to Him. Let's close in song. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.